0: James chapter 2, beginning one verse prior, uh, chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What use is it, my brethren? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give him what, give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which said, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also, so also faith without works is dead. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning, church. Would you please join me in an opening word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to your word of life and light this morning, Father, I ask that through the Holy Spirit you would do these things. Father, that we would see you, the Almighty Father, the Father of mercy and grace. Father, that we would see Jesus, your Son, sent on our behalf. Father, that we would see the glorious gospel this morning. Father, of your deliverance, of us from sin that we could not deliver ourselves and father may we accurately see our lives this morning in light of these things and father be led by you to follow you in the path that you would have us go father we ask these things in jesus name amen well this morning um After many weeks in James chapter 1 we come to James chapter 2 and it can be a a thought as we work through a book that a new chapter means a new thought or a new place or something new to pick up on and this is one of those chapter references that have been misplaced. Um, They aren't inspired in the text because uh, chapter 2 is definitely a continuation of chapter 1. Right. We're, we're just continuing the thought, we're continuing the flow of ideas that James has had here in chapter 1. And it's really an application of chapter 1. These first 13 verses of chapter 2 are an application or what I could call even a case study. Right? How do we take chapter 1 and live that out? How is chapter 1 lived out? James is a very practical book in that way. So this morning uh, I asked Nathan to rewind and read a verse uh, prior to... 2 Verse 1, and that's 127. So let's read that together as our starting point. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. We talked about this last week when Steve preached last week that this sets the standard or the definition of pure religion. It's not an exhaustive list of what a pure religion would be, right? Our, our walk as Christians isn't just simply caring for widows and orphans and keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. These were making references to bigger concepts. So really, to put it within the context, and as we talked last week, that pure religion is this. It's seeking to serve others and to live an ungodly life unspotted from the world. A pure exercise of religion is seeking to serve others and to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Now this week as I was studying, I came across religion as a very interesting word. It's a compound um, coming from Latin. It's re put together with legio. Re and legio come together. Re means again, right? Redo, right? Recall, you know, that we're familiar with. That prefix re means again. Legio means to bond together. So as we look at the definition of religion, what it does is it bonds together again belief and action. That's what religion is. Now there's pure religion and there's impure religion. Exercises of religion. But religion is a bonding together of beliefs and actions. So, in this context, here in James, pure religion is right and it's a needed outward living of our faith. It's a right and needed expression of our faith in God. Verses 1 through 13 then are a practical application of a pure religion. For a church and its members. So he's speaking to a church. He's written a letter to the church and he's giving them an idea of how to practice this pure religion within the church but also speaking to the individual members of that church. Note the starting point for these practical actions that he's going to talk about. He's giving us this case study of pure religion worked out of how to have actions that are consistent with a faith rooted in the gospel. But where is his starting point? Now in verse 1 he says, My brethren, have not the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. As we start the sermon this morning I want to draw everyone's attention there. Our starting point for action, our starting point for anything in our Christian life is Christ. That's our starting point. We look at Christ. In him we see the gospel lived out. Then we make correct personal application of moral choices and moral actions. See, we get off track when we get these things out of order. When our priority becomes on ourselves determining on what's moral and right and then trying to take those actions to Christ to earn his favor, we're out of order. That's a backwards. We get off track when we attempt to work our way towards Christ. And that's going to be very important as we go through the book of James here and we've got this interplay of faith and works that keeps coming up in the book. Let's keep the priority in mind. Faith And our gaze on Jesus Christ comes first. Works flow out of that. Faith and our focus on Jesus Christ comes first. And then works are going to flow out of that. So church in all things we need to start rooted and grounded in Christ. And then act. And then determine our actions. And then determine the direction that we're going to go from that. So building on this sure base of Christ. As we look at these 13 verses in chapter 2. They're going to show us how to have sound faith. And works bound together in dealing with a sin issue. Now there is a sin issue that James is writing about that was present in the church at that time. I would say it is a sin issue that is present in the church of this day as well. So this is very pertinent teaching as well. But again as we go through this and we look at the practical application, hold on to the theme that in all things we start from Christ and then we act. So, these 13 vi- verses really, in essence, a summary statement of them would be purity of religion is revealed as we face the sin of partiality. To look just at the text and the context here in James, the point James is making is the purity of our religion is revealed as we face the sin of partiality. Don't miss, though, the broader application here. James is focusing on partiality we could substitute other sins in the place of partiality. So what James is also teaching here is the purity of our religion, right? The the genuineness of it, the sincerity of it is revealed as we face sins in our lives. So that's going to be our overarching look. And how does James walk us through this in three sections? First he identifies the pressing problem and its roots in verses 1-4. through The pressing problem in the church and its roots. Then he gives us God's perspective on the problem. How does God view this sin, this problem going on in the church? And then finally, he encourages us to have the proper response in light of God's view of the problem. So we're going to look at the problem. We're going to look at God's perspective on the problem. And then God's encouragement. How do we handle, how do we react to the problem? So let's turn to James 2, beginning again in verse 1, reading down to verse 4. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that wears the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in the good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves, and become judges of evil thoughts? The NASB puts, verse 1 is, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Okay, Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So, James is shining the spotlight right here on favoritism in the church. The practice of treating people differently based on appearance, status, or some standing that they have in the world. So favoritism, partiality, there's a couple different things depending on the translation you're using this morning. But it's speaking of treating people differently based on some kind of external, some kind of standing they have within society. And James is warning against that. He directly addresses the issue at the root concerns because then your profession of faith and your actions are not bound together. He's saying if you profess faith... In the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot hold an attitude of personal favoritism. They aren't conducive. They aren't religion. They aren't bound together. You've disconnected. You've disconnected in some way. Why Why the concern? Well, the first concern is that Christians who show personal favoritism distort and misrepresent Christ and His gospel. That's right here in verse 1 for us to see. He said, "Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism." James reminds us of the example of Christ, who had all the riches and glory at his disposal. He had beyond what we can imagine. Yet he chose to came here, to come here for a time and humbly serve. He had nowhere to lay his head while he walked here, right? Foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then he gave his life. He died to save sinful men, men that weren't even outwardly on board with him and following him. So, the heart of what Christ shows in his life and the heart of the gospel is giving. Right? Christ gave. Right? If we put one word on that, he gave. Favoritism is just the opposite. Favoritism is about getting. The spirit of favoritism is we would look at a person for what we can get from them and not how we could serve them. It's the polar opposite of Christ. It's the polar opposite of the gospel message. And that's why James brings it to the forefront in the attention here. Because the warning is that if Christians go about showing partiality, we're not living out the gospel we're not, we, don't, we haven't made that link between what our faith truly is and what our actions are we're not practicing pure religion at that point when we're showing partiality we're showing a distorted gospel right that we give and we serve so we can get something in return and that's not where God was headed God's love is a love without regard for what he can get in return what, what could Christ get from any of us he had everything he had all the riches and glory There's nothing we have to give him. So one problem is that partiality distorts the gospel message that we're here to proclaim. We are here to proclaim that message. So when we get off track and we separate our actions from true faith, we're proclaiming a false gospel. We're giving a false impression of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second issue in partiality as well. And that it's incompatible with faith. It characterizes a life that doesn't fully trust God. In essence it says when we exercise this partiality that God cannot provide my needs. God is not providing me what I need so I need to go out and make it happen. I need to adopt the world's methods, the world's view of things. I need to cater to someone to get then what I need. And not being content for God to be the channel for providing us. So when we scheme and manipulate to try to get finances, power, influence, popularity, we're at some saying, God, we're not content with the deal that you've given us. Right? I need to get in here and I need to help you out a little bit, God. You, you've not quite given me what I need. Years ago, um, I came across some teaching out of the book of Proverbs. It's very helpful in this area. Proverbs gives us lots of wisdom. Please turn with me to Proverbs. Proverbs 30, we're going to look at verses 8 and 9. Proverbs 38 and 9. And please turn there. I'd like to look at that together this morning. Because I think it speaks directly to this attitude of God's provision and a contentment with God's provision. Proverbs 30, verse 8 says, Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food convenient for me lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of God in vain. I think that speaks pretty directly to God's attitudes about providing material worldly goods to us and the attitude we should have towards it It is a trust in God that he knows what resources we need. He knows what an excess would be to us that would cause us to become self-sufficient and not be dependent on God. He knows what scarcity would be that would cause us to steal or take the name of God in vain. To do something against the Lord to try to maneuver ourselves into a better position. We can lay these things completely in God's hand in his control. Because he knows. Right? Your heavenly father knows the things That you have need of. So, this is a great verse to counter that idea of a dissatisfaction with our lot and the temptation to try to improve it through favoritism and through kind of buttering up or going towards somebody. Because when we have favoritism, it essentially shouts to those around us that God is not sufficient, He is not able to provide for us. We're not content with His provision and we need to help Him out by forming our own plans and schemes. Favoritism seeks personal gain and shows a lack of trust in God's vision. There's a third issue with favoritism, and it's brought out in verse 4. So back over to James 2. Verse 4, and I'm going to read this one from the Amplified. It says, Are you not discriminating among your own and becoming critics and judges with wrong motives? Okay, so verse 4 brings out this third aspect of the issue that God would have with partiality because we become discriminating upon our own and we're critics and judges with wrong motives. We have a wrong view of people. We begin to look at them and their station in life in terms of material goods as a reflection of their value spiritually or how good a Christian they are or how closely they're walking with the Lord. We become judges among ourselves, we become critical and we judge with wrong motives. Right? We're looking at outward appearances. It's not that we're not to judge. Right? Other places we are to be to judge. But when we look at a person's outward circumstances and make inference about their inner state, right, we become with wrong motives. And looking at poor and rich differently and having this partiality does that. You know, God makes no distinction based on worldly status. He created us all. He created the world. He gives poverty and riches to each as he sees best. So James identified here a pretty pressing problem with favoritism. Right? And at the root it's a situation again where actions have become separated from a faith. Right? The, the actions being acted out now aren't rooted and grounded in the faith that is being professed. So in that case though you are showing some religion. Because you will act on what you believe. So if your actions aren't matching faith in the Lord Jesus Christ the challenge is what are you believing? What you are believing now is not rooted in Him. It is rooted in something else. could be rooted in the world. It could be rooted in many other places. So we show a religion to the world by how we live. So the question, church, is what religion are we showing? Which one are we putting out there? Are our actions consistent with the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel? Or are our actions consistent with something else? Either way... You're showing religion in the way you live because you're binding beliefs and actions together. So what we want to do as believers is bind our actions to the true belief, right? To the pure religion that we talked about last week, to that care for others, and to that remaining unspotted from the world. That's what we want to be bound to. That's the pure religion that James is encouraging the church to here. So, after having looked at partiality, let me ask you, Do you show partiality? Does this happen in your life? Now, I want to be clear, this doesn't mean you don't have closer friendships with some people and some things like that. Again, remember, the root of partiality is you're interacting with somebody to get something from them. And how you treat them is based on what you're going to get back from them. That's what's being warned about here. So when you're in an important business meeting, happens to be at a restaurant, Do you treat the person you're meeting with better than the waitstaff? That's a spirit of partiality if you do. Because you can't get anything but your plate of food from the waitstaff and you're trying to get the business deal from the person that you're sitting with. It can be subtle. We have to be on guard for this. It can be very subtle. So think about that. Are you showing partiality? And it comes to motives, right? What are your motives in how you're treating people? And again, there's a broader application here as well. There could be other practices, other things that we're about as Christians that don't connect in with true faith in Christ and the gospel. So what are those things? Maybe it's not partiality for you. Praise the Lord for that, that you're free from that. But there, are there other things, right, that, that you're not bound to the gospel by, but you're bound to some other way of thinking by that is then giving a distorted message, of Christ in the Gospel. So James has identified the problem here. The problem he's addressing directly is favoritism. Now we need God's mind on the matter. So now the problem's identified. The next thing to do is what does God think about what's going on? What's God's view? What does God have to say about this? Verse 5... Listen, right? Here's what God has to say. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So what does God think about this? What does he think about the poor and the rich? Well, verse 5 is pretty clear. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? That should be a very familiar theme. Have you guys heard that in the last couple of weeks? Right, earlier in James, right, we just have to look in James chapter one, verses nine and ten, where God talks about this issue. And we'll see this. Excuse me. In the book of James, is he doesn't always write completely literally. Right? He'll bring up an idea here. He'll write some more context. He'll bring it back in the new context. So we're going to see some of these threads all throughout the book. But here in 1, 9, and 10, speaking of worldly goods, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. So first thing God looks at is God's not looking down on the poor. He's not saying they're poor because my disfavor is upon them. In fact, he's saying, I've opened up the kingdom, right? Right? them to be heirs of the kingdom of heaven. God also thinks they've got some wrong thinking here. Looking in verse 6, he says, you've despised the poor. And then he said, so you're despising the ones that I don't despise. That's a problem. And then the second problem is, you're giving favor to these rich, and what were the rich doing at the time? Persecuting them. Stirring up trouble. Dragging them into court. So he's clearly calling them out on this situation, right? Of why would you, you know, go towards these people who are persecuting you unless you're looking to get something from them, right? They were blind to the true situation of what was going on because they had selfish desires they were pursuing in this situation. So then verse eight, if however you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, You're doing well. So now God brings in a reminder. So this is what I desire. And he reminds us of the law. He calls it the royal law. Okay, who's the king? Christ. And what did Christ speak? He spoke two things about that encompasses the whole law, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James here is making application of the latter part. Right? Not of expressing love towards God, but expressing love towards neighbors. So he quotes just the last half, right, the portion in which Christ was speaking about, how do we approach other people? And he said, we're to have a genuine love for others, our outward portion of the law. Right? So Christ has instructed us in what to do. He has said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then you are following the royal law. What's the royal law? It's the moral instructions given by Christ, especially about love. It's the moral instructions given by Christ. It, it parallels, it agrees with the other law. But if you remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ raised the bar. Right? He didn't just say, don't murder. He said, don't have anger. He didn't say, don't commit adultery. He said, don't lust. Right? So it's, it's the external law, but also coupled with attitudes. So James is continuing to drive here down towards our root attitudes, right? What we're believing, what worldview, what thought process we're operating, conducting ourselves out of. So so he continues to bring us back to that. And it's wonderful as as you read through James, continue to look for those parallels to the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount was very practical, right? Christ was teaching some of the practicals, and James is a very practical. So the two, the, the section of the Gospel and the book of James meld together really very well. So Christ raised the bar, though, in the Sermon on the Mount. And again, this ties directly to that, speaking that the inner attitudes is sinful, not just exterior actions. So the bottom line here is the attitude and acts of favoritism are what? Verse 9 says... But if you show partiality, you're committing sin. And you've committed a transgression of the law. That's what verse 9 tells us. So this whole idea of being partial and the difficulty of it and the things of it, when you come down right to the root of it, it's sin. S-I-N. A very small word. But that's how God views partiality. It is sin. And just in case we want to kind of soften that a little bit and say, well, but it's not, right? It's only, I'm only a little partial, right? It's not that I'm a murderer. It's not that I'm an adulterer. I'm not committing these big sins. God doesn't have those gradients. Look at verses 10 and 11. What does God say? He doesn't want us to be confused here. First, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, partiality, has become guilty of all. For he said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you still are a transgressor of the law. So there's some additional teaching here. There's no one sin more acceptable than another in God's sight. There's no one that's less offensive in God's sight than any other one. So partiality here sits on par with what we might consider more grievous sins. So we need to ask ourselves, are we in the habit of reducing the severity of our sin by comparison to others or other standards? Do we kind of compare our righteousness to to something else other than the law of liberty, the royal law spoken about here? And is that a way to kind of soften the sin in our lives? God hates sin because sin distorts things. And the sin of partiality distorts the gospel by saying some external factor or worldly accomplishment makes this person more important or desirable than that person. Isn't that a terrible distortion of the gospel? God's no respecter of persons. John 3:16. God so loved the world. Not the rich of the world. Not the important of the world. Not the sports figures of the world. But God so loved the whole world that he gave his son. You know, that's the gospel message, folks. We don't earn it. God gives it. And if you're in your seat this morning trying to earn it, if you're inventing a religion of your own this morning, if you've developed your own moral code And you think maybe if I can keep to that, if I can keep away from the bigger sins, if I can kind of do it this way, God's going to have favor on me. God's going to overlook this. I plead with you this morning, don't stay there. Christ is our starting point. That's the gospel message, is you aren't worthy. You won't make yourself worthy. You cannot be worthy in and among your own efforts. But Christ is worthy. God is gracious and merciful as we're going to see as we finish out this chapter. And it's his grace and mercy that calls you to him. Accept him on that standing and that standing alone. You know, we don't have to overvalue one person or another because all people have the same eternal need and the same path to salvation through Christ. You know, the world, and we as Christians do it, we should rejoice when one comes to Christ. But sometimes do we rejoice more when it's somebody famous, a bigger name, isn't it great that athlete said this, or that politician said this or that. And I think we need to encourage those who are believers that have an opportunity in the public eye to be genuine and out there about their faith. But we can rejoice just as much about a little one coming to the Lord as somebody that's currently in the public spotlight. Doesn't God rejoice as much over each one that comes to the Lord? And that's something I want to leave us with this morning. Um, I know kind of mid-sermon sometimes it's like, okay, it's hard to slip something in here sometimes. Maybe your mind is starting to wander a little bit. So I want to call everybody back to an important fact here. Church, each one of you sitting here this morning are of equal value to Christ as everybody else in this room. There is no one person in this room that's more important to Jesus Christ than anyone else. Not based on your age, not based on your standing, not based on your height, not based on your gender, not based on anything. You are all of equal worth to our Lord Jesus Christ. He came and gave his life for each of you and that is the path to eternity with him for each of you. He is not a respecter of persons. Let's not be a respecter of persons ourselves. He loves you dearly. You are all of great value and worth. So do not allow someone or something else to determine your value or worth. Think about that this morning. As you sit here, Who or what are you allowing to define your value or your worth? If it's something other than Christ, let it go and turn to Christ for your value and your worth. In the remaining two verses here in the chapter, God's going to give the proper response to this sin of partiality. And the proper response, in essence, returns to pure religion that ties our actions back to faith in Jesus Christ. So God's going to put the pieces back together here. James is going to tell them how to bring the pieces back together to have pure religion, right? To take this gospel and the person of Christ that they believe in and have their actions line up with it. It's a simple one-word solution. At least the word's simple. When there's sin, what's the solution? Repent. Right? Nothing new here from the text this morning. Right? The solution, the proper response to sin is repent. but let 's think about repentance a little bit, and let's see the type of repentance that James is pointing at. Repentance involves kind of four steps. We could look at it that way. We confess our sin before God. We ask his forgiveness we turn our back on the sin and actually head the other way. What I want to encourage you is to confess before God and the act of for forgiveness happens. Right? Don't stop there, though. It's not just a matter of going before God and asking his forgiveness. Father, I'm sorry I sinned. I did it again. I did it again. I did it again. It's a turning your back on the sin and actively heading away from it where the victory comes where the solution comes you know how foolish it is to sit there to confess something and then the next day stand and, and look at the thing that caused you to sin and say boy that's really tempting but i confessed uh, i repented of that i'm uh, but it's really tempting it, it's right there in front it, boy it's really tempting but god will give me the strength to to not be tempted by this right i've confessed it God gives grace, right? He gives grace. I, I won't do that again. I mean, confession and repentance is important. But how better instead just keep looking at it is to turn and look another way and look towards Christ. Right? Not even look at it anymore. That's the grace that God gives. God gives us the grace to turn away from the world and turn towards Christ. That's repentance. It's not hanging around close to it. Right? It's, it's confessing. It's forsaking, it's turning, and heading completely the other way. That's an important aspect of repentance. And James wants to remind the readers of that. He says in verse 12, Give it here. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. He said, so now do it. right? You've, you've, we've identified this sin, you've gotten God's understanding on it, so now go speak and act in a different way. Stop speaking and acting in the old way, head another way. Walk away from the sin of partiality and speak and act like a believer under the law of liberty, under the moral instruction given by Christ. Again, Christ the great example. Favoritism is counter to his character. Though he was glorious, he humbled himself to identify with the poor and the oppressed to whom he promised his kingdom. His mission was announced at the beginning of his ministry, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and to recover sight for the blind to release the oppressed. Luke 4.18. Prejudice, partiality, based on physical appearance, social status, or anything is inconsistent with Christ. So as we want to turn away from Partiality, we want to turn towards the one who is completely impartial, which is Christ. That's part of the repentance process. Turn away. Head another direction. And so James is saying that. Start to speak and act in consistency with the way that your Lord Jesus Christ does. Then there's a second thing. Verse 13. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The second part of that turning away and heading a different direction is aligning our lives' priority with the Word. Remember, in showing partiality, they were exercising judgment without mercy. That's what was going on. They were looking at a person's external, they were judging them, and then basing their actions on that. They were acting out of judgment first and not looking at that person with mercy. It gives them a spirit of pride. Puffing themselves up by belittling another. Self-serving. And catch the warning this has on you. Judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Church, when we direct our thoughts on biblical priorities, we put on mercy first. Doesn't the word say, put ye on bowels of mercy? Mercy is our starting point. We get things in order. Think things through biblically. In this repentance, so we deal first with mercy, then we make wise judgments that serve others and glorify God. When we start with judgment, we're serving ourselves. When we start with mercy, our judgment then is for the service of others, for their betterment, not for our self betterment. Now, this is not a suggestion here that our expressions of mercies somehow obligates God to show us mercy. Right? This isn't a, this isn't a give to get. It's not that since we're merciful now, God will be merciful to us. Guess what? He was merciful to us way before we ever thought of extending mercy to anyone else. All right, let's get that in the proper order. It's when we aren't merciful, then we've forgotten the depth of our own need for mercy and therefore refuse to extend it to others. When we are not merciful, we reveal that we fail to realize how much we've been forgiven. But when we treat people with mercy as our starting point, we accurately portray the gospel message in practical actions for the glory of God. So church, as you interact with those around you, is mercy your starting point? Is that the frame of reference that you begin to operate from? We want to operate from Christ. Right? That's one of the other themes that kind of weaves throughout here. Not only is partiality bad, but we've got the theme of clinging to Christ... And using him to set our direction and our course, he was merciful first. Will we be merciful first and foremost? Is mercy your starting point in dealing with people? So here we see James is making a practical application of how to live out pure religion. How to live out faith that is rooted firmly and fixed in Christ. How to have actions right, that reflect that, that are pure, right, that place others first, that look to serve them, that actions that seek to keep us unspotted and untainted from the world. They are actions then that accurately portray the gospel in Christ to the world around us that's watching. Our lives are then preaching the gospel when we live... And conduct ourselves in this way. Acts of mercy are the right and necessary expressions of the content of the gospel. So pure religion is what? In the context of this, pure religion, again, is serving others. It's being merciful to all, the poor and the rich. And pure religion is staying unspotted from the world. Not adapting their view of partiality and giving in order to get pure religion serving others and staying unspotted from the world and remember religion re again legio bound together religion binds together faith and actions and we want to bind to the true faith to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospels and have those actions be the ones that we're living out so pure religion, our religion is tested when we face the sin of partiality the genuineness of our religion, the sincerity of it is tested when we face the temptation to be partial. But also remember, the bigger context is this also serves as a model and outline for other sins that need to be addressed in our lives. And what were the three steps James walked us through? Identifying the problem and its roots. First, we need to be aware that there's a problem. The second is to see the problem from God's perspective right? view it for what it actually is see it from God's perspective and then the third is take action act repent and is in that repentance change and head off in a completely new direction church this morning I want you to live in the joy of God's mercy to you that triumphs over judgment Look at that in verse 13. Talking of God, he is sh- said, His mercy rejoices against judgment. Or mercy triumphs over judgment. So this morning, please, as you move ahead, go out and live in the joy of God's mercy towards you that triumphs over the pending judgment. Share that message through true religion that shows the gospel and leads others to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the mercy that you shower upon us. And Father, that those who have called upon that mercy for their salvation and trust in your mercy and your promises alone, Father, that we will triumph over the judgment. And Father, that you've provided then a way for us to be with you for eternity. And, Lord, how important it is in the brief time that we have here to lead others to that realization and to lead others to you. So, Father, I pray that as we walk out this week, that we will, as believers here at Hope in Christ, the believers here at Hope in Christ, that we will live out a pure religion. That the actions, the words, the thoughts, the attitudes that we have would be bound, rebound, tightly to Jesus Christ and the gospel. And Lord, may that just preach a sermon every day to those who are around us. And may it cause others to turn from whatever they're looking at and turn and look and gaze intently upon Christ and follow where he leads. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.